the midst of the Areopagus. Uh, you can see that in verse 22. And in the preceding verses, we get this description of Paul's travel and taking him to, to Athens. And while he, he waited for some of his travel com- companions, we are told in, in, verse seven, in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, um, his spirit was provoked within him. Abraham Michael uh, graciously shared during the children's talk the, the image of, of an idol. And so that was what Paul saw in that city. And Paul met with the locals and some um, God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue, as well as, we're told, those in the marketplace every day. And in verse 18, we are told that the Epicurean and Stoke philosophers, in a sense, those who, who were the most intelligent and the brilliant ones of the day, they began to converse with him. And here in verse 22, Paul is dragged before them um, in the Areopagus, which is Mars Hills also. And as he stands before them, what does he do? He told that Paul describes or, or he declares the message of Jesus risen from the dead. And the need for all men and all women to turn away from their sins and to turn to God. So Paul had already preached in Thessalonica, in Thessalonica and in Berea without a warm reception. In fact, the reason why he was here in Athens was because some Jews who were jealous that some of those in Thessalonica had turned to God. They were jealous of that. And so Paul had to, to run away from that city in a sense. As he had already preached there, he was doing the same here in Athens. So as we look at this, this sermon, in a sense, um, what I'm doing here this morning is not preaching an original sermon. I'm, I'm sort of retelling a sermon that Paul preached before this man in Mass Hill. So I want us to, to look at this sermon, in a sense, under three main points. We're going to look at what, what Paul observed in the city of Athens. And then longer, we're going to look at what he proclaimed before this man. And finally, what the reaction of the people was. So first, what did Paul observe? Well, there in verse 22, we are told, as Paul stands before them, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And so what Paul observed was that they were very religious. They were very religious people. And for some of us, that might seem like a compliment. But if we are familiar with with our Bibles and Paul's writing, we will know that this is not a compliment. Indeed, these people were superstitious. They were reverent to different deities. In fact, they were given, some of them, to demon worship. So what did Paul see that you know, led him to conclude that these people were religious. First, he saw their objects of worship. Verse 16 tells us that the city was full of idols. Verse 23, he says, For as I passed along, what did I do? I observed the objects of your worship. This was the very thing that provoked Paul to speak and engage with the people. One ancient writer tells us that at this time there were about 30,000 gods in Athens. 
They were everywhere. The city was full of idols. In fact, they had gods of every single thing you could conceive of. They had gods of war. In fact, Areopagus, which is Mars Hills, was in a sense dedicated to the god of war, Mars. They had gods of beauty. They had gods of fertility. They had gods of wealth. In fact, it was easier to find a god in Athens than to find a man. The city was full of idols. And just in case, so that they do not miss one, they had an altar with inscription to an unknown God. In a sense, they, they, were, they had no convictions. They, they were those who, you might say, are agnostics. Maybe there is one more that we do not know about. Another evidence of, of their religions or their religion was in the leanings or the ideas, the leanings or the ideas of the day. Here we see uh, in verse 18, the two schools of thoughts of philosophers are, are mentioned, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And in a sense, this, these people were passionate rivals. Who were the Epicureans? They were, they were followers of the Greek, God, Greek philosopher Epicurus. They were all materialists. They believed that all that exists was just matter. And for them, their, their way of life was happiness. That it lay in the pursuit of pleasure. But while they believed in the Greek gods, they denied that they had created the world. That they had any interest in men. And that there was no such thing as life after death. And so their belief system, their creed was basically, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so anything in life, if it feels good, then it is good. The second were the Stoics. They were the followers of the Greek philosopher Zeno. What was their own belief? They believed that everything is God. And so God does not exist as a separate entity, but in rocks, in trees, in every material thing. Each man was a little universe. And the soul of every man was sort of the spark that imparted life to his body. If the Epicureans were to, you know, to eat and drink and, and you know, and, and have pleasure in everything, this one's there. Their goal in life was moral seriousness. And they had a high sense of duty. And so this were, the, in a sense, the, the competing ideas of the day. Athens was very religious. In the same way, the world today is very religious. As I tried to find out how many religions in the world, there were a lot of statistics, but most of them would say that there are at least 4,000 religions today. And 85% people identify with an organized religion. But yet, even the strongest of atheists, some of whom I have as friends, are passionately religious. 
You see, today's gods might not be one that you carve. Of course, there are some who still do that. But there are people who are so giving and passionate to their hobbies. Many of us might not sit back and, you know, and think things through as, as some of these philosophers do. But many of us, our lives are given to pleasure. We might not think through it, but we do not deny that for many people it is. If it feels good, it is good. Or maybe you've had someone who has said, I am not religious, I am just spiritual. Or those who are given to cultism, that are all there in the world. And maybe you'll be thinking, well, that is not me. You know, we're from, uh, many of us here are Nigerians, and we, you know, buildings, very big buildings, where the first floor is a church, the second floor is a church, the third floor is another church. And every Sunday, people troop in there. And it's a religious thing to do. Yet the question is, in how many of those churches is the true and living God worshipped? And for you this morning, it might be the same. You know, coming to church might just be one extra thing you do during the week. But is it the worship of the true and living God? So let's not deny the fact that each and every one of us here this morning are religious. And just as the, they had this altar to the unknown God, you know, the God who made, he, he made from every man, or from one man rather, every nation of mankind. God is not just the creator of the world. He is the creator of everything in it, including man. And he did that from one man. He created various nations of the world. You know, we can pause on this and maybe apply it to one of the big issues of our day. Racism. Well, the Bible says that actually... There is just one race. And so that if we are actually going to use the correct biblical term, well, the problem is tribalism, not racism. Because there is just one race. God made every single man from one man. And each and every one of us, and many of us, and us all here, we are different. But we are all made from one man, Adam. And so that if you are actually going to understand the evil of, if we use the word again, racism, this is the only reasonable start. Because again, if we think of another competing ideas of the day, if, you know, people are evolved and they somehow, you know, just appeared here and they evolved to where we are today, then 
Why should anyone care about how you treat another person? But because we are all made by God, we are all made in his image, then actually the sin of racism is a sin against the creator. And the world cannot solve this because the world does not actually understand it. From one man, God made all nations. One race, many tribes. He determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling. God determines the rise and fall of nations. God determines where the Greeks were so, you know, in a sense, the, the greatest nation of their time. The Romans. And today, maybe my American friends will smile. Maybe they are the other ones. But maybe that's not going to last forever. God determines that. And he's not just the creator, he is the sustainer. The second part of that verse 24, it says, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by hand. See, the Epicureans had believed that, in a sense, God was not involved in creation. The, the Stoics had believed that he was so involved that everything was God. Here, Paul is cutting through that and telling them, well, in one sense, God is far above us. He's the creator. But in another sense, he is also involved. He sustains us. He keeps us. I don't know if you actually think about that. That the ability to even raise up your hand or even move your feet is because God sustains you. He is also the giver of life and breath and everything. See that in verse 25 and verse 28. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. So we have to get this distinction between us and God. He does not need anything from any man. God is absolutely self-sufficient in himself. You know, so that you might think that when you somehow bring a gift or anything before God, it's because he needs this. No. God gives us everything. And whatever we think we might be giving to God or in service to him is or should be as a response of thanksgiving to what he has given us. He gives us life, breath, and everything. In verse 28, Paul quotes some poets of their time. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. He is the very source of our being. And we are indeed his offspring. I 
Also, God is. He is the revealer. In verse 27, he says, Why did God make man that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him? Yet, he's actually not far from any one of us. You see, in a sense, as Paul quotes this poet, what he's saying here is that they had a glimpse of God. They knew that being God's offspring, well, it is actually foolish to assume that an object of worship would represent this God. You think of it. When a man gives birth, he doesn't give birth to a non-living thing. And God, who has created us, how is it possible for us to then be creating him and, in a sense, creating a lifeless object and saying, this is your creator? No, God is bigger than we can ever imagine or think. But although they had a glimpse of it, although they had a glimpse of of God, they couldn't truly get a hold of it. Because they were groping in the dark. Since perhaps they feel their way toward him and find him. You see, and this is for us the very first application from this proclamation of Paul here. The fact is, all men around the world, they know God. They know that God is. Men know from creation, if we turn to Psalm 19, which we sang a a part of it, all heavens declare the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that what is known about God is plain to every man. Why? Because God has shown it to them. It is clear every single man perceives from creation that God is. And because of that, men are without excuse. But what do people do with that knowledge? In Romans 1.21, Paul says, For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what do they do? Because God has made us to worship, to seek him. And because people have rejected him, then they have to create idols and gods to fill in that void. And they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And so it's not as if, you know, man grew from irreligion to religion. No. It is that man began from a state of knowing God to rejecting him and then replacing him with idols, with false religion, with false worship. 
Someone puts it this way. Man, says Paul, started with the knowledge of God. And if he lacks it now, it is because he has deliberately suppressed and lost it. The story of man with respect to God is not one of gradual progress and development and rising, but rather one of decline and fall. The Bible then shows very clearly that the whole of mankind, which began with the knowledge of God, has fallen away from the knowledge. And his tendency then is to sink lower and lower, further away from it. And in verse 29, Paul shows clearly what those people are saying, are doing rather. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. See, this is the natural default position of the fallen man. You see, and do not assume that you are immune to this. You see, because it is easy for me to stand up here and share a good talk with you. It is easy for me to stand up here and share with you my imaginations. It is easy for you to walk into any assembly, any gathering, and a man is sharing his thoughts. But somehow, because he has sprinkled on it God and Jesus, the assumption is this is about God and Jesus. Well, some of us might say we keep repeating this every Sunday. But the only way we can avoid having a God of our own imagination and our own thinking is if we are submitted or submitting to God's word. Because outside this, that's why at first I, I used the illustration of several churches back home in Nigeria. I'm not in any way hitting against them, no. It is for us here to, at least I know many of us are familiar with that. Because if, if it's a man just sharing his personal imagination, his personal reflections, then what you have is a God of your own imagination. And a God of your own imagination is that a God of your own imagination? He's an idol. He's a false God. He is not the true and living God. And because people have suppressed the knowledge of God, People have suppressed the voice of God in creation, in our conscience. That is why we need to hear God's word in the Bible. You see, the Bible doesn't paint a pretty picture of men and women. The Bible doesn't say that you are Perfect that you can do it. 
No, what the Bible says is, by default, you're hostile to God. That all in Adam, in that one man that God made, are lost. And because each and every one of us are guilty of the sin of idolatry, we are all guilty before God. We are all guilty before God. You are guilty before God. And if you're guilty before God, and since you are guilty before God, the question is, what is your plan? In verse 30, Paul says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. Now, he's not saying that somehow God had looked upon the sins of those people and swept it under the carpet. No. Here, he's showing God's patience with people. That God had not immediately destroyed them. The Bible reminds us that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. God had not destroyed them because of his patience with them. But those times of ignorance, the time of God's patience, in a sense, has come to an end. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So this is not a suggestion. It is not an invitation. It is a command. It is not a command to few people. It is a command to all people. God made all people. All people have turned away from God. And all people are guilty before him. And the command is for all people to repent. Idolatry is universal. The rejection of God is universal. And it's not only universal, it is personal. And the command is for you also this morning to turn away from the false gods, to turn away from the false imaginations of God, to turn to the true and living God. I, I didn't you know, discuss this with um, Michael, but somehow he brought up a phone. And I was thinking, well, yesterday night, I, how would I best explain this? And I remember that I have a phone. Um, and the phone is good for many things. It does many good things. But at times, it gets annoying. And it's full. And I have to restore it to the default setting or the factory setting. Well, what is your default setting? All men in Adam, the default setting is to turn away from God. And if you've turned away from God, and since you have turned away from God, the command is to repent, to turn back to him. It's as simple as believe. Turn away from your idols and serve the living and true God.
And the question on their minds might have been, well, why should, why, why should I care about turning or repenting? Paul gives the reason in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on, on, in which he would judge the world in righteousness. God has fixed a day. And many of us look forward to our, our bad days. Some people do countdowns. I find that frustrating at times on WhatsApp status. You're counting down to your bed day. <laughs> Some of us look forward to our anniversaries. Some of us look forward to various other things. Maybe your wedding day. And some people look forward to election day. There are days that various people look forward to. But God has fixed a day. And no man knows that day. And people can speculate what they want about that. But no one knows. But God has fixed that day. And on that day, he would judge the world in righteousness. See, this judgment is not going to be arbitrary or random. It's not going to be by your own standard. So that if you're thinking, well, I'm a very nice person. Well, the point is not your niceness. Because you can actually be lost in niceness. It is on God's standard, his absolute righteousness. He would judge a word in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There is a judge. We know who that judge is, and it's Jesus. And the proof is his resurrection. You see, every other religion you might think of, those who might say, well, they are all the same. Let us start with whoever is at the head of those religions. Each and every one of them are dead, except one. And the proof that Jesus is, our judge is that he is alive. You see, in, in John chapter 5, where Jesus, after Jesus had healed a man. And as always, the Jews were, were not happy with that. And Jesus didn't try to comfort them. He actually heightened it. He made the statement that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And earlier in John, when the Jews were demanding a sign, in verse 2, in chapter 2, rather, verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews responded, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? 
And John writes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus says, I am the one who will judge you. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he did raise it up. Now, there is no greater proof. And because this is a command, the rejection of it has consequences. No, it's not, okay, as I said, a suggestion or invitation that you can do away with. It is a command to repent. Whoever hears my word, says Jesus, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, the good good news is this. It's not that God sweeps your sins under the carpet. No. It is that the very one who is your judge is the one who has taken your sins. It is Jesus who has taken your sins. And the simple thing is, repent and believe. Just trust him. Just believe in him. I know many of us are from backgrounds where we we are told to do many other things. Do this, do that, do this, do that. No. No. God's word says, just believe in the Savior. It's as simple as that. But because man is religious, that sounds just too simple to him. And that's why finally, at all, we see their reaction. The reaction. See, the gospel always brings reactions. Wherever it is preached, when Jesus proclaimed, when he healed, in all the things he did, there were various reactions. And here Paul standing before them. His sermon, his preaching, evoked three different kinds of response. Number one, there were those who mocked him. It's in verse, in verse 18. Uh, it says there that they were calling Paul a babbler. It says, what does this babbler wish to say? In verse 32, there were some who mocked. In a sense, the only thing that has changed was the degree to which they were ridiculing him. It only intensified their unbelief. And it's possible here That someone, your mind, you could be saying, well, what is this joker all about? What is this saying? And you mock. Well, if Paul, the apostle, could be mocked, who am I? 
But remember, it is a command to repent. It is not a suggestion. Second, there were those who, who put it off for some other time. In verse 32 there, it also says, others said, we will hear you again about this. But there is no evidence that they had another opportunity to continue the conversation. We don't know. And if life is all about eating and drinking, and tomorrow we die, then you can always put it off. But it's not. And thirdly, there were those who believed. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. And one of those who believed was Dionysius the Ropagite. And he was one of these intelligent people. And it's a reminder that the problem is not the intelligence. The problem is not the evidence. As I said, every man knows from creation that God is. In a sense, there are no real atheists. There could be those who claim they are, but there just isn't. Because every man in his conscience knows. So the problem is not intelligence. It's not intellectual. The problem is not where you're from. Your location. God has made every man to seek him. And perhaps find him. Or feel their way to him. The problem is not your intelligence. It's not your location. It's not the circumstances you were born in. As much as Many of us might want to grieve about our nations. That is not a problem. Because you could be placed in the most prosperous, wealthiest nation in the world and still reject God. And there are countless of that today. The problem is not that you are in Cyprus and somehow if you get to America or Canada, then you would begin to serve the only true and living God. In fact, it would just give you the means to other idols. That is not a problem. The problem is man's pride. The problem is moral. The problem is spiritual. Why would anyone today Hear. Hear this. And know that yes, I need to repent. Reject it. It is because the default setting of every man is to turn away from the living God and serve God that we are comfortable with. But the good news is there are people who believe. And they do not believe because they were able to figure it out. No. People believe.
Because just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he can raise sinners from the dead. Friends, if, if you hear me clearly this morning, I just want to ask you one question. Why won't you turn and believe in the Savior? What is keeping you? It's a God's kindness ought to lead us to repentance. Just as God's kindness and patience was shown to this man, as long as we breed, we have God's kindness and patience. And it ought to lead you to repentance. And for those of us who would say, yes, I have repented. I'm trusting in Jesus. Let me ask you, do you see first the idols of your heart? Do you see the idols in Cyprus or you just don't recognize them? On a certain day, I was again with bro um, Tibet and we were passing a particular street and he was showing me that at every point there were you know, shops basically of beauty, beauty, just different shops. And people flocking there religiously. Don't kid yourself. People are passionate about things. There are things that give them life. If you take that away, they are done for. Do you see the idols in your heart and the idols around you? Or have you grown cold? And so that, just like Paul, it provokes you. And the provocation is not to go around kicking the idols and the buildings. No. It provokes you to a holy anger of sharing the only true and living God that he can be known through Christ. If we really see the idols of our land and believe that people are lost, do we really share Jesus with people? With our friends? Or do we say, no, he's a Muslim and so he's you know, he's comfortable in his religion. He's as religious as I am. Yet, you do not see or perceive that that dear friend is lost. The hope that Jesus gives us is a hope that is beyond today. And if you believe him, then you have to trust him and live a life that will glorify him. See, our world is full of terrible news, bad news, awful news. It's as if there is no good news. 
But the Bible gives us a good news. There is a good news in a Savior, in Jesus. As we sang, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun. And whenever I think of that hymn, and I, I see all may be happening in the world, this is true. And though we may not understand all, we know that God has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. So friends, as, as Paul observed, observed the, the idols of his day, as he proclaimed the news, and as they responded, the question for you this morning is, what is my response? Am I walking out of here still holding tight to those idols? Or am I walking out of here believing in the only true and living God?